Welcome to Tomball Bible Church. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us at tomballbible.church. Well, I'd like to invite you to turn to Romans 4. If you brought your Bibles, turn to, to Romans 4. We're going to be ending out this chapter this morning. We're going to finish it up today. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story. Years ago, my wife and I went on an anniversary trip, and because we were rolling in cash, we went to Austin, and it was awesome. And one of the coolest things that we did, we actually splurged on, was a Segway tour of downtown Austin. And if you don't know what a Segway is, let me just educate you real quick. It's one axle with wheels on this end and a platform in the middle and a post coming out, and you just stand on it, and it goes. It goes forwards, backwards, you turn it sideways, all the things. Things the mall cops right around on. Anyways, I loved it. It was, I was love at first sight with that Segway. I wanted to have, I wish if I could have one, I would, I'd rather have a Segway than a car. Let's just say it that way. My wife's all like, well, how are you going to take the kids anywhere? And I'm like, how long are we going to coddle them? They can learn to hang on or learn a valuable lesson about quitting. So let's just get a Segway. But the weirdest thing about these things is how they stop. That's, that's the most mind-blowing thing. That's the most counterintuitive thing you could ever deal with, right? So the instructor's there, and we went on a day where there's nobody. It was just us two and the instructor, which was perfect because it was embarrassing at the first part. You do it practicing by this little fence for a little while. But he says, okay, what you're going to do is you're going to get on there, and you're just going to, to lean forward. Just kind of put your belly on the handlebars, and it's going to roll forward, and then pull back, and it'll stop. And you're like... Okay, maybe, but I'm not going to pull back on the thing because what if I fall over? It doesn't make any sense. I, I might just kind of like lean my heels back, but I'm not pulling back on that thing. But if you don't pull back, then you don't stop. And then now you do the, the dreaded one-footed hobble where you kind of are like, ha, 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 you got one foot on the ground and one foot on the thing. And he said that everybody did it. And I was like, I don't know if you know, but I uh, played high school football, so I probably won't be doing that. Sure enough, in about two minutes around the Texas Capitol, I was doing the one-footed hobble around that thing, because I wasn't listening to the instructor. But when finally, you, you finally just give up and just say, I'll do it. And so you grab those handlebars and you just lean all the way back. You throw everything you have backwards and it stops and you don't fall over. It is, it's wizardry. And nobody knows how that thing works. I went home and researched online. How does it work? And it's like the science just blew my mind. The picture was enough for me, like water moving in there and pistons going up and down and electrodes firing, something like that. And you have no idea. But when you finally trust it, it's like the most freeing thing in the world that I can. I mean, and then you get kind of cocky and you're trying to like, I'm going to flip this thing backwards. I'm going to try to yank it all the way over. And then you can't because you, you can't. That's how it's made. It just stays balanced and upright all the time. It goes forward, it goes backwards. It was the most fun thing I ever wanted. So if you have a segue and you're looking to get rid of it, you can just send it to my house. I'll take it for free, right around the church. The reason I tell you that story is not with no purpose, because we would be remiss if we made it all the way through Romans chapter 4 and we did not have a workable definition of faith, of how to describe and communicate what authentic biblical faith is. So in order to prep us for this end paragraph or this end section of Romans chapter 4, I want to give you, R.C. Sproul helpfully laid out like a threefold definition of what authentic saving faith is. It involves three factors. The first one is it involves content to be believed, right? There has to be a body of truth in order for you to believe that body of truth. So there has to be some kind of content for you to believe, 
The second factor is an intellectual assent that I'm going to mentally acknowledge that that body of, of information is true, that I'm just going to say that is true. In my mind, I believe that to be true. So there's a content, there's an intellectual assent, and the last thing is personal trust because you don't have saving faith if it ends in intellectual assent. So think about it like the segue. When I get there to, and my wife and I get to the instruction place and I hear the guy talk about, this is how segues work. He talks about it all backwards and forwards. Here's the safety things. This is why you wear a helmet. This is how you lean. This is what you do in traffic. This is how you park it. He says all of those things. And I hear the body of information. I hear all the content. And then I go, you know what? That guy's right. I believe that that's how segues function. If it ends there, am I actually on the Segway tour? If I go, yeah, I believe that. I heard the truth. I understand that. But I'm just going to go ahead and walk this Segway tour then I don't have faith of any kind, right? I haven't placed any personal trust in that segue until I get on it and go down a hill towards a raging intersection and then pull back to make it stop before I get plastered by cars. So in the same way, us as Christians in regards to Jesus, that there is a body of truth a body of content that we believe about salvation, creation, fall, and redemption, that we were created, we rebelled against that creator, we, a gulf then exists between us and him. Christ is the only one who can bridge that gulf, and by faith in him, we are granted eternal life because his righteousness has been placed upon us. So there's this body of truth that we have to hear those facts first. But then we have to assent that those are true. We have to mentally, intellectually say, that's true. That's what I believe. But if I have no personal trust, if I have, I, what I have to do, I have to heave all that I am and all that I think and all that I believe onto the person of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, I don't have saving faith. A mere intellectual assent to some facts does not save. Personal trust in an object of faith that is Jesus saves us. So with that working definition, let's look at Romans 4, 18 through 25. Paul's closing out his, his uh, argument as using Abraham as his example of what saving faith really looks like. And he's going to be done with Abraham for the rest of the book pretty much by the end of this chapter. So let's follow as he concludes this argument. Look in verse 18. In hope he, meaning Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. That first phrase we got to deal with, in hope he believed against hope. What is that talking about? Well, this is Paul's way of saying that Abraham believed God against all reasonable hope, against what made sense as a human being, against all possible hope, even though it seemed foolish, according to man's standards or human ability, he believed that what God said God would do. He believed what he was told. That's what he believed. And this is the warp and the wolf of the Christian faith. Do you believe what God has said? That's what it comes down to. Do you believe what you've been told by God? Faith, true faith that saves, directs our eyes Godward and off of our circumstances. Do we believe what God has said? Abraham didn't have a Bible. He didn't have pages to pour over and to look at when this was happening. He didn't have 
Instant replay to slow-mo down God's promise and then hear it again. He didn't have DVR to just replay it and watch it again. He had God say it once, and then he believed. That's what he was working with. That's why effective evangelism doesn't depend upon you and your interpersonal skills. Effective evangelism is wholly dependent upon the Holy Spirit using the words that he penned through the biblical authors. So you don't have to be a fantastic argumenter or orator, or you don't have to be conversationally savvy for someone to come to faith in Jesus Christ. All you have to do is give them what God has said and place before him the option, the reality, the necessity of believing what God has said. That's what effective evangelism is. That's how Abraham was saved. But what specifically was he told? What does this verse say? So shall your offspring be? What shall his offspring be? See, Paul's assuming you know Genesis 15. And if you go back to Genesis 15, verse 5, you read the whole verse because Paul only quoted a portion. It says, and he brought him outside. He being God brought him, Abraham, outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's what they were going to be. They were going to be as numerous as the stars. Could Abraham number them? Of course he couldn't number them. But this is God showing that the mind of God is different than the mind of man, that God knows all of the stars. He knows all of the names of his children. Psalm 147 verse 4 says this level of detail to what God knows. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. So Abraham hears that in Genesis 15, 5, and Genesis 15, 6 is the verse we've been talking about throughout this whole chapter. And he believed God, and it was credited to him or counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believes right then and there in the bare promise of God. And up until then, what had God done to just wow Abraham? Nothing. In Genesis 12, he says, leave where you're going, and I'm going to do this. That's it. No show of, of miracles, no big to do, just faith in this bare promise from God. Nothing written down, no scrap of paper, nothing. And he believes. And in verse 19, it says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So God says, I'm going to make your children as numerous as those stars. And he looks at his 100-year-old body and goes, yep, that's going to happen. And he looks at his 90-something-year-old wife and goes, yep, definitely going to happen. I believe it. That's what happened. That's what, he, that's what he said. That's what he believed. He considered the deadness of his body and said, God can do this. Those are the cold, hard facts. Staring Abraham in the faith. Senior citizens don't have babies. And they certainly don't live long enough to raise those babies. I mean, just the toll that pregnancy takes on a young woman's body. Can you imagine that happening on the bones and muscles of a woman in her 90s? I mean, is she going to even be able to produce milk to feed this baby and keep him alive? Nevertheless, Abraham believes. Our faith is similar to that, isn't it? This is how we're born. You were born a hater of God. You were born completely morally incapable. You can't even keep your own moral standards. I will never do this or this is always right. You can't even keep that. And yet the requirement for heaven is righteousness equivalent to God's. 
And not only all, despite all of that too, you were born dead in your trespasses. So you can't even call out for help. And yet, despite all of that, you who are Christians believe that God will save me in spite of all of that. Against all of those odds stacked against me, I believe that Jesus Christ has paid my Everest-sized debt and the Holy Spirit has breathed new life into my dead carcass and made me a new creature and I will be brought to glory based on faith in Christ. Does hope against hope make more sense now? You have no reason based on your situation to think that you should be saved and you should get to go to heaven. You're believing in the likeness of Abraham, all the odds stacked against you, that the simple reality that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from hell. That is hope against hope. Because you can't do anything, just as Abraham couldn't do anything to make his body more virile. And his faith is unwavering. Look at verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Once God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness, Abraham did not drift into unbelief or disbelief in any way. Saving faith is being fully convinced that God will do and God can do that which he has promised. Remember, we've looked at Hebrews 11, 1 and 6 a lot in chapter 4. We're going to look at it again. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Belief and unbelief cannot coexist within a truly justified person. Belief in doubt or belief in questioning can certainly coexist within a justified person because doubt or questioning is confusion. Unbelief is a decision. So Paul's not saying here that Abraham ever wondered or questioned or maybe had doubts. He's saying he never had unbelief because that's different Wholly different. Unbelief, the word used here is a pistia. Pistia is faith. A is without. This word literally means without faith. And when it's defined by Greek lexicons, it means unwillingness to commit oneself to another. Unwillingness to respond positively to another words, another's words or action. You cannot be a believer who does not believe. You cannot count yourself amongst the Christian faith if you do not have faith. So Paul is getting at in these passages. 1 John 5.10 says, this is the nature of what no faith or unbelief is. It says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son, that's what unbelief really is. God has spoken and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. There is salvation in no one else but through him. And when you say, I don't believe that, what you're saying is you're a liar. 
Unbelief is calling God a liar. He's promised something. And if you don't believe it, then you're saying, in effect, you cannot be trusted. Your word is not trustworthy. Therefore, you are a liar. So these are heavy terms of what unbelief and Abraham did not waver in that. Abraham has the heart of one who is redeemed by God because he does not drift towards unbelief. But you say to me, people have said to me, they say, Stu, at times I feel like my faith is weak. I feel like I know that I'm saved. I know that I'm trusting in Christ alone for my justification, but I just feel frail or weak or, or brittle in regards to my faith. What should I do when I feel dry? You don't, you don't need to seek my advice in this in any way. You need to seek what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? He grew strong in faith. How? What's verse 21 say? By giving glory to God. That's how he grew strong in faith. Because you can't glorify God if you aren't ever increasing in your understanding of the glories of God. Why he deserves glory. If your faith is weak, it's because you don't know Jesus very well. It's because you don't have an intimate knowledge of the object of your faith Therefore, your glory-giving efforts are anemic. You need to understand the object of your faith. Charles Spurgeon wrote and said it like this, people seem to think that only workers, meaning people who do things, can give glory to God, but more glory is given to God by one drachma of faith than by a ton of works. After all, works usually generate conceit and pride in us, but faith lays itself low before it's God and gives to him all the glory. God is never more glorified than he is by the believing confidence of his people when difficulties seem to come in the way. So you ask yourself, why should I give glory to God? And surely you have answers for that. But if you can finish answering that question in less than a minute's time, then you found the reason why your faith feels weak. It should take you hours to answer the question, why does God deserve glory? Why should I be in the act of glorifying God? That's why I read the Psalms all the time because I need to be instructed as to why God should receive glory. That's why I read the devotions of Charles Spurgeon. I read the prayers of the Puritans because I need help. I need education and explaining and giving the words to God as to why he is so glorious and worthy of all glory. I need help in that. So we first turn to the divine inspired word of God saying what he said back to him, which we read in the Psalms, and then education from older, wiser, faithful servants in the Christian faith. See, faith itself grows and is strengthened when your understanding of the object of your faith grows. Really, when the object of your faith, when it conforms to reality in your own mind. You're not making Jesus anything more than he is. You're just conforming to the reality of who he is. That strengthens our faith. Your faith grows strong and unwavering like Abraham's. That Abraham's faith was specific, not general and just kind of marshmallowy. Francis Schaeffer wrote, he, he meaning Abraham, believed God. And he believed God could do a specific thing. 
What he believed specifically was that God could quicken the dead to bring forth life out of that which was a coffin, that which was truly dead. This is what Abraham believed. So do you believe God can do what he said he will do? That is the essence of faith, that he takes people who are spiritually dead and makes them alive through Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to all who believe? Do you believe that he can back up that promise? Let me ask it another way for you personally. How sure are you that upon your death, you will be granted admission into heaven? 25%, 50%, 75%, 100%. If you answer anything less than 100%, then one of two things is going on. Either one, you don't really understand what it is that God promised when he promises salvation to those who believe in him. Or number two, you don't actually believe that God can do what he said he can do. And therefore, you do not have saving faith. And if that is you right now, cling to Christ now. Believe now. Gain 100% now. Trust God at his word and be saved because that's what's on the table. Not a chance of redemption and eternal life, but the guarantee of redemption and eternal life. Verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Why was Abraham's faith counted to him as righteousness? Because he was fully convinced that God keeps promises. That's why it was counted to him. Not only did Abraham believe that God exists, like Hebrews eleven six 6 says, but that he believed that God, what God said he would do, that his speaking is his doing that God cannot speak something and then not do it. They are the same. His speaking is his doing. His faith, Abraham's faith, was real. And we have this outlined for us in a condensed way in Hebrews 11. Let me read to you starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that, his, that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. That's Abraham's faith. That's Sarah's faith. It grew stronger because he grew in the understanding of the glory of God. His vision and understanding of God got bigger and bigger and his vision toward himself got smaller and smaller. And that may be one of the most detrimental errors in the church today. What you believe about God is typically he's just a bigger and slightly smarter and slightly older version of me. That that's who God is. Our view of ourselves is so high that we don't have the capacity to intake the truths of the glory of God. 
We don't revere God. We barely remember God. We have created a God in our image. And the great thing about that God is he never make life too inconvenient for you. But he's also not the God of the Bible. Abraham's faith grew because he gave glory to God and it was counted to him as righteousness because it was saving faith. It was faith that grew stronger. It was faith that was consumed with the knowledge of the holy. It was faith that loved God. You can't tell me that you love your spouse, but you don't ever want to talk to them. You don't want to learn anything about them. You don't want to hear from them and you don't factor them into your daily life. You don't love your spouse if those things are true. Why would it be any different for God? If you say that you have faith that does love God. See, this is the picture of saving faith modeled to us by Abraham. Now, I hope that some of you are out there squirming in your chairs. That you know your Bible and you've read your, New Te- or your Old Testament in Genesis. And you're like, how can Paul so brazenly assert that Abraham didn't waver in faith when we know that he did? This seems like a massive contradiction. How is the existence of Ishmael not a proof positive that Abraham did in fact waver in unbelief and did in fact weaken in faith? How is that not possible? I asked myself that years ago studying this. Well, I was walking around the track trying to memorize these verses. I have my little verse cards and I was dwelling on Romans 4, 20 and 21. And then it starts coming to me. What about Ishmael? How was how that not it? God promises a child. And so Abraham decides to sleep with his wife's servant and have a child instead of with his own wife. How is that not unbelief? How is that not weak faith? I just started grappling with this. I'm sure you guys have done that as well. God said, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And he goes, my wife is old. Her servant is young. She's cool with it. Let's have a son here named Ishmael. How was that not Abraham being not fully convinced and weakening in faith? It looks like exactly that's what happened. How do we reconcile this apparent contradiction within scriptures? Because we as thinking Christians must not run from apparent contradictions. We must run to them. And we must get excited that we're about to learn something that is not that the Bible contradicts itself is that my understanding is insufficient. So we do what Paul did. What did Paul do in Romans 4 verse 10 to try to explain this whole circumcision thing? He just went back to the timeline of Genesis. And when I was studying this, I mean, it was days and days. It was years ago, but over days and days of thinking on it, it finally dawned on me. The Holy Spirit probably just thumped me in the frontal lobe. Why don't you just go read Genesis? Instead of trying to figure it out on your own, I'm like, oh, that's a pretty good idea. Glad I came up with that. What happens in the timeline of Genesis? Abraham knows nothing of Yahweh until Genesis 12. And he talks to him and says, you're moving, and I'm going to give you land, offspring, and blessing. Then God doesn't talk to him again until Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, what's going on? He says, God, I'm freaking out a little bit. I don't have a kid. And what's going to go, all that I have is going to go to the son of my servant. It's going to go to Eliezer. I don't have my own son. And God says, he promises directly, you will have a son from your own body. Literally means from your own loins. You will have a child from that. So then in Genesis chapter 16, very next chapter, Sarah says, this is crazy. Here's my servant. 
have a child with her, which was a very acceptable Middle Eastern practice or Near Eastern practice in the ancient world that you could vicariously have a child if your wife was barren through her handmaiden. So it wasn't foreign to Abraham at all that this was a possibility. So he just did it. And what was the promise? How was he still not wavering at that point? What had God said specifically up to that point? He had only said it will come from your body. Doesn't mention Sarah's at all. And that's actually still a step of great faith that a man in his upper 90s can still conceive. But then the very next chapter, chapter 17, when God issues a furtherance of the covenant and gives to him the sign of circumcision, that's when he says in verse 15 through 19 that it will come from your body and Sarah's body. And then on from 17 until Isaac is born in chapter 21, Abraham doesn't try any runarounds. He doesn't try to help God out in any way, but he grows strong in faith, giving glory to God. We need to notice this as a side note for Bible study that those in the pages of scripture did not have scripture. You got given upon your birth and upon your rebirth, a full and complete Bible that was not being progressively revealed to you. You have in your lap all that God intends to say to us. Abraham had a remembrance of a voice talking to him at interspurtant times. So that, that's being progressively revealed to him. We need to keep that in mind when we understand our Bible. So he didn't have the passage on marriage the passage is on marriage. He didn't have anything written down. He, didn't, he couldn't turn to Hebrews 11 like we got to do a few minutes ago and look at all these examples of people who had faith in him. He's just going off of a bare word from an invisible being. Now that is tremendous faith. That is why he is the father of faith. In verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone but for ours also. Do you remember last week when I told you that we're digging into all this Abraham stuff, not because it's just fun Bible trivia? Paul's backing that up right now. I promise I'm never getting up here trying to impress you with obscure but insignificant Bible trivia. We're here for the meat of the word. And Paul says it wasn't written just for Abraham, but it was written for us now. We believe 2 Timothy 3.16 is true, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that includes Genesis 12 through 17, that that is inspired and profitable for us here and now in 2018, like it spoke to Paul in AD 56 when he was writing this book. It isn't just religious trivia. God has a mission and it's been active since Genesis. And we have been co-opted into that mission in the same way that Abraham was co-opted into that mission in Genesis. That's what Paul's trying to prove. That's why it's not just needless, frivolous trivia. Abraham never knew the name Jesus, but he was justified in the same way that we who do know the name Jesus are justified. We believe in the likeness of Abraham, that God can bring death from life that out of a coffin, the coffin of Sarah's womb, God can bring deliverance through Isaac, which would descend down to Jesus. We believe in a God who raises from the dead. That's who we believe. We believe in the same way that Abraham, and if you believe on Christ, 
and repent of your sins, you will be robed in his righteousness and counted as acceptable in the sight of God. You will be saved just as Abraham was centuries ago. This idea of faith, we cannot belabor enough. Spurgeon wrote, faith is not to infer something good from within me that I shall be saved, but to say in the teeth and despite of the fact that I am guilty in the sight of God and deserve his wrath, yet I do nevertheless believe that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses me from all sin. And though my present consciousness condemns me, yet my faith overpowers my consciousness. And I do believe that he is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto him by God. What was Jesus in verse 25? who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul now moves toward the resurrection. He was delivered up, meaning he died for our forgiveness of sins, but then he was raised from the grave in order that we might be justified. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself what happens to us if Jesus doesn't raise from the dead? What happens? In a fictitious world where that could happen, the best you could possibly hope for was annihilation upon death. You don't get to go to heaven, but you're not going to hell, so you just cease to exist. Because the only thing that would be done is that your sins would be paid for, but you would not have been granted access to heaven. But that, of course, can't happen, because if Jesus does die and then stays dead, then he's proven to be not God and because God can't die, and therefore not an acceptable sacrifice. The resurrection of Jesus is a core doctrine for us as Christians, because if it isn't true, we cannot be justified in the sight of God. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen through 19 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, meaning eternally. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, meaning there's no resurrection afterwards, we of all people are most to be pitied. The entirety of our faith hinges upon the resurrection. The denial of the propitiatory death of Christ or of his resurrection from the dead is a denial of the gospel. It is a refusing to be saved according to the method which God has appointed. So says Charles Hodge, that if you deny the resurrection, then you don't have the gospel. The resurrection proves Jesus to be the once for all sacrifice that God deemed acceptable in his sight for all he will save for all of eternity. And he showed that acceptance by raising him from the dead. That proves God to be just and the justifier. He had someone to justly pour out his full wrath on and he's able to justify us because that one is raised from the dead. The resurrection is absolutely key to all of this. He is able to justify the one who has faith in Jesus because faith in Jesus unites the believer to Christ's very resurrection. That's what you're united to when you believe upon Christ. You're united to his resurrection. Romans 6 is going to blow that up in a huge way when we finally get there. But that's what Paul's kind of teeing us up for. He's ending this chapter on Abraham with this tag on of Christology so that we would know and understand that we're moving towards Jesus, that Abraham is only a picture, that Jesus is the substance 
And chapter five is going to be all about Christ being the perfect and second Adam and that he is the one who has paid our debt and bought that reconciliation. Therefore, we are eternally secure. That's chapter five we'll get to next week. But for this week, your application is to think deeply upon what saving faith is. Because if Hebrews 11.6 is true, that says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. If that's true, then we had better put in the time to understand what that faith is. We have to understand that because if we get it wrong and then therefore don't have authentic biblical saving faith, then everything after that is moot. Faith is a starting point. If we don't have saving faith, then your service doesn't matter. Then your worship doesn't matter. Then your obedience doesn't matter. Then your study doesn't matter. It all hinges upon faith. So study it. Dwell on it. And when you have studied upon it, and when you can confidently say before God and the church that I do have saving faith, I'm relying on Christ alone. I love him above all things. I am positive as much as any human being could possibly be. Then meditate on that. Dwell on that. Ruminate on that. Don't rest until you understand what saving faith is in enough of a way that you can explain it to a child. I've always found that any biblical principle, if I can't explain it to a child, then I don't really know it. If I can't boil it down to its core essential elements, then I probably don't know it. So meditate on what faith is. And then lastly, for all of us, read of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 2 says that he is the author and the perfecter of faith. Romans three twenty six says that he is the object of your faith. Let your faith come into greater understanding of what is true about Jesus. You aren't adding new things to him. You are understanding him in his fullness. And when that grows in your mind, when that grows in your heart, your faith is strong, is immovable. It is steadfast to withstand the storms of life because the view of yourself is so small and thus your circumstances become so small but your view of God is so big that it makes your circumstances look almost laughable. So read of Jesus Christ. We claim to love him above all. We claim to have a relationship with him, but how little we know of what he actually said and what he actually did. And when Christ is all and in all, there is security and there is strength of faith. Let's pray. Bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you as people most undeserving for salvation by faith alone, that we are justified in your sight when we believe you at your word. Father, let us dwell upon, meditate upon the simplicity of that, but not run from the complexity of it. That the gospel is so beautifully simple that a child can in all faithfulness understand and believe but it is so deep and it is so manifold that it can keep us busy long, long into our years until you call us home. 
Let us be a people who ruminate upon Christ, who think upon him. Let him become so overwhelmingly expansive in our minds that we can't help but give glory to you. And that our circumstances and our trials seem so minuscule. Our sin seems so disgusting. The world seems so boring and so mundane. Lord, grow that in us and let us be an encouragement to one another as we seek to grow together as a body of Christ. We thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness to us. We ask that this praise would be acceptable to you as we sing and as we live and conduct ourselves this week. In Christ's name, amen. To find out more, visit us at tombaubible.church.